Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The Dogs of War podcast is brought to you by Fansided. Party on, Raleigh, and party on, Kevin. Hey! Dogs of War, Dogs of War podcast. Cleveland Browns. It's the offseason. It's time to talk brown stuff with your excellent co-host, Raleigh. And with him, as always, is equally excellent co-host, Kevin. Browns confirmed, Raleigh. And Browns confirmed, Kevin. Dogs of War! And you ready? Oh, yeah. I was born ready. After a two-week hiatus, we're back, baby. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dogs of War podcast. If you're listening to this today, it's coming out. It is Thursday, July 8th. We've been off for a couple of weeks. Uh, to be frank, not a whole lot to talk about with the Browns in July, uh, which is actually going to be tough to say here because our very, very special guest today has to do this many, many times a week and for four hours every single day. Raleigh, would you like to bring in our esteemed guest who must have lost a bet or something to be on this podcast today? But nonetheless, we appreciate it. Uh, we've been we've been hounding him for some time. Uh, can't believe we we did it. This is like this is Mel Gibson caliber interview. Let's go. We got Mr. Mike Ryan Ruiz, the executive producer of the Dan Lebetard Show, and more importantly, diehard Browns fans. First question. You grew up in, did you grow up in Miami? Yeah, grew up in Miami. So I imagine you could ask me how I became a Browns fan, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's a very Miami story, actually. My uh, grandparents were Cuban exiles. My dad was a Cuban exile. So by being a Cuban exile, you you leave the country, you leave your wealth, your home, you leave everything behind, and you come to the United States with nothing. So my family in Cuba was upper middle class, but here, you know, bare bones, poor. So they had to build themselves up uh, from zero. And that meant uh, a life of poverty for my grandparents and, and my father uh, for quite a while. Um, they had good jobs there. And my grandmother had to work in hotels down here as a, as a cleaning lady because that was the only job that she could get down here in Miami. Long story short, because of that poverty, she would shop at the dollar store. And this was a habit that was fortified over decades by the time I came around, and there is a very a high concentrated Cuban area of Miami called Hialeah, in which she lived, and there okay. was a Hialeah dollar store. And through whatever random avenues Brown's memorabilia might find its way to the Hialeah dollar store, it did. And I was there, and I love sports and anything with a helmet or a logo on it, I gravitated to. Uh, she would shop there for just regular household items. She would make the great. Uh, she would make a great bisan panisada, which is just basically breaded steak. It's awesome. Whenever I would go there on the weekends, because she shopped at the random highly a dollar store, all her paper plates and uh, napkins and cups were Cleveland Browns. Huh. Yeah. and As I, if her I, life wasn't already <laughs> challenging enough. But. Yeah. So after a, a couple of years of eating off of these ugly orange helmet plates that I didn't really know. I just thought it was like a generic football plate. The Dolphins were playing the Browns uh, when I was very young on on TV, and I put two and two together, and I found my team. And then that team left (laughs) and uh, it was terrible for two decades when they came back. And um, I often shake a fist towards the heaven that uh, the highly a dollar store didn't have Patriots paper plates. (laughs) Yeah. I, I stuck with the Browns. I never followed them to Baltimore. I guess for those few years that there wasn't a football team, I leaned Dolphins. But the second that it was announced that the Browns were back, I was a very happy kid. And um, I've lived and died with this team. Um, more more deaths over the years. <laughs> more deaths. A lot more deaths. But, yeah, I, I love them because they randomly found their memorabilia into a highly a dollar store. I don't know if it was rent. Do you ever reflect? That's amazing. Do you ever reflect on the guy that was like, 
Yeah, I'm going to get rid of these Browns helmets <laughs> the dollar <laughs> store and uh, yeah. shape the life of this guy. <laughs> you know I, I mean? Yeah. Every, yeah, it's a butterfly effect. Every, every cause has a, as an act, as a reaction to it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know what, uh, possessed, uh, whoever was taking inventory at the Hialeah dollar store to take in paper plates of the Cleveland Browns, but I'm sure happy they did because it's, it's a fan base unlike any other. And we all kind of identify with this, for lack of a better word, loser mentality and, and the passion for the team never really went away. It's sort of like a badge of honor that we're able to suffer through that and still have packed stadiums and still travel uh, as well we did uh, as well as we have. And I'm kind of curious now what it's going to be like for us on the road, because generally whenever I would travel to, to Browns games, people were always super nice and kind of felt bad for us. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm going to the Kansas city game and I'm, I'm genuinely curious to see what the reaction is going to be to, to us now. Oh yeah. I got my, I, do you got your flights yet for that, Kevin? No, for October. Yeah. No, for, uh, Kansas City, it's like yeah, it's September. September. Oh no! I decided to not go to Kansas City for the first game. No, because um, we have potentially two games in LA this year. So I'm trying to put my, you know, my money, my PTO where it should be, just in case you got to hold it in. Uh, Mike, that story is incredible. And now let me just preface this by saying I am in no way comparing Clevelanders to immigrating from Cuba and having to work a thousand hours a day. Like, let's get that straight. But the fact that your grandma was one of those badass, you know, working 22 hours a day, probably walking to and from all this, you said cleaning. That's such a very much of the blue collar Cleveland mentality too. That's so many people in Cleveland, especially people that listen to us, like take pride in. So yeah. that still is a very, very interesting parallel. And it just, it, you know, it makes sense. Somehow I never considered or another, that. I never considered another, we always, we always find our way of some similarities yeah. here. Yeah, well, the the Browns, as as much as they gravitate towards their uh, reputation, they also really embrace the uh, the blue collar Rust Belt uh, heartland of it all, which is you couldn't really get further away from that down here in Miami. Uh, but uh, it's an interesting dichotomy for me. It's uh, you know, it's, I, I it's my favorite professional sports team. And I say that as someone that's on the payroll of of Chelsea FC. This is uh, the Cleveland Browns winning would mean everything to me. Um, making Ben Roethlisberger cry was honestly one of the happiest moments of my life. And uh, <laughs> I, I love everything that goes into it. And this team deserves a winner. Uh, the, the, this, uh, the city of Cleveland and their fan base in particular really deserve a winner. So on your show, uh, one of my buddies who uh, listens to the Levitard show all the time wanted to know if uh, Stugatz is a is genuine in when he says he's happy for Browns fans. <laughs> I don't think uh, you wow. could have stopped it. You could have stopped it at genuine. Stugatz is not uh, <laughs> uh, genuine, really. You heard it here he's, first. Yeah, Stugatz is uh, his character on the air is a, a very slight amplification of who he is in real life. Everyone else has to amplify their personalities by just very means of being on the show. But Stugatz is as close to real as you'll find. And he is, it's honestly the most honest, truthful relationship I have because I just approach everything that he says as this is a lie. So <laughs> if you do that, you kind of get to see in the matrix, you know, that, you know, the, the truth at the heart of everything. If you just know that everything that comes out of this human being is a lie. Kevin, <laughs> Kevin, you, Kevin, don't act like you've seen the matrix. Uh, I haven't seen the metrics. <laughs> I got the reference. That was sick. Um, so the executive producer of one of the most listens, listened to sports podcasts in the world. Podcasts. Podcasts. What did I say? Sports podcasts, but I'm, it's, it's, okay, it's podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong, but I'm just extending that. Yeah, and you're also wrong to call into question whether or not we're a sports podcast, Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Clevelander Hotel, is that where all the episodes are recorded? Yeah, we still have that studio. We um, obviously had a very well-publicized breakup with ESPN, but in the negotiations, that piece of real estate is presently ours. And was that was that your hill... <laughs> Was that your fight? Like, no. was that the EVP flexing, saying, no, guys, it's going to be the Clevelander Hotel? Uh, no, happy coincidence. Uh, yeah, I, I've 
spotted the irony in that. I think the most ironic thing of all is we probably don't get that studio built within that Clevelander hotel. We're not for LeBron James leaving Cleveland. So I think that's actually the truer, uh, the truer ironic meaning behind us being at the Clevelander is LeBron coming to Miami, making that decision. I'm sure you guys felt painfully because I felt it when he decided to go back there. I can't even imagine what it must have been like the first time he built us an economy. It was probably economically speaking, the most impactful sports thing that ever happened to us. <laughs> Ironically, our economy at the time was pretty much entirely based on LeBron. So yeah, or <laughs> one Miami, I guess the yachts, you're saying the, the yachts that you already had. <laughs> I will say my own personal sports economy down here in South Florida changed from that moment on. You talked about it. You said the, the well-publicized. So in December, uh, it was announced that you guys at ESPN will be parting ways. You guys had your final show the first week of January this year. You guys signed with DraftKings you know, a few months later. You guys have had what seems to be like from the, from the cheap seats where Raleigh and I sit. Uh, you guys have had a hell of a last six, seven months. He's kind of walk us through like this whirlwind. And are your guys' heads still spinning? Is it like – we're cool back. We're calm back down again. And things just like cruising. Like you guys did this, this huge transition, but you're still one of the biggest podcasts on the planet. I mean, that's no surprise. Your fans aren't going to just disappear, but yeah, I just want to hear what these last few months. It just, it's just been incredible to watch you guys. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, I'm going to be very careful to not turn this into a therapy session because it, it has been very hard. And I think people kind of take for granted how hard it is to build. It's not sexy, but building an infrastructure is, is taxing. Um, we were the hood ornament on a startup company. Startup companies are notoriously very difficult. A lot of them go under, and not a lot of them have what Metal Arc had in us, which was a wildly popular uh, sports property. And so to the audience sitting at home, when they get their podcast and their workflow in terms of enjoying the content we put out doesn't change all that much, they assume everything is is just the same as it ever was. And no, January 4th, ESPN ripped out all their equipment. We had 12 hours. We had some weeks in lead time and making sure software was right. But we had basically 12 hours to put in an all-new infrastructure. Um, and we worked tirelessly throughout the holidays to, to make sure that we were ready to give our audience what they craved, which was the Levitard show, as they always experience it, which was primarily a podcast. So TV cameras go away. I, but when we say, all right, let's do a show on January 5th, no one cares to really bring up like, all right, internet. How, how are we going to do that? Because I, I log in on this computer and it's a Disney Corp login. How are we, yeah, we going to have internet? Yeah. How are we going to have bandwidth? How are we going to do the show? So we had to figure all that stuff out. I, I am not, I, I, I don't, engineering is not a foreign language to me just by being in the in the industry for about 20 years but when we're like i was out of my depth so we we brought in uh, uh two assassins and alex steiner and chris whittingham when i was asked by metal art very early on like what do you need to get this done i was like give me that guy give me that guy and we'll roll and we'll figure it out so it was very difficult early on i i am very proud to say that after the first couple of weeks we decided to reduce our our output to three shows a week we actually increased our listenership from what it was over at espn when we were doing five shows a week so we are now perennially in that top three sports podcast and it's basically musical chairs between bill simmons part of my take and us we um the DraftKings thing uh, was a lot of hard work a lot of presentations a lot of strategizing a lot of uh, a, a lot of great people coming together to make that thing happen and it worked out we we bet on ourselves and i can tell you while we were very happy at espn and, and uh it was great for our careers it wasn't three years 50 million dollars so <laughs> i feel like it was a good bet on us uh, and it worked out well we've taken that money and we're putting it back into the company and eventually hiring more talent and and doing more creative endeavors outside of just what you've seen with the Levitard show. And even with the Levitard show, we did that freedom marathon, which damn near killed me. Um, Th that's was, where I wanted to go next. So yeah. great segue, but yeah, sorry, keep going. We did that freedom marathon and I can answer your questions on that, but yeah, it, it, it damn near killed me. And really 
what what I burned out. I, to be honest with you, I I needed three weeks off. I had nothing left after that uh, after that marathon. And what it was wasn't just so much that marathon. Though the marathon was very very hard, professionally speaking. Um, it was the most ambitious thing we've ever done, and it was there was a sense of accomplishment. But really, it was the infrastructure. It was leaving ESPN, and prior to that, it was doing eight months of shows from Dan's apartment, being the only person to engineer and literally moving headphones to computer screens and figuring out how to integrate and inventing, really, because no one had figured it out, how to get Zoom-quality audio from people on remote broadcasts that don't have ISDM machines to sound top quality on the radio. We invented that. I invented that with Chris Whittingham. We, we rigged a whole piece of equipment to sound good. And it was just doing that stuff by myself. It was a pandemic transition and, and marathon just ended up killing me. It was a very rough year and a half. And the result is three years, $50 million with DraftKings and a really good partner that believes in what we do and the opportunity to create even more cool content. That's so incredible. Uh, for, speaking of wealth and power, we got to jump. Do we have an ad read this week, Kevin? No, we do not. Oh. <laughs> We're poor again. Never mind. Uh, continue <laughs> for people that uh, yeah we're taking June and July we're, we're we're off months for for the ad reads there at Rally for people that are living under a rock um, or under the 480 bridge as always shout out to them what we're what we're discuss- what Mike was just discussing here is called freedom uh, the 24 hour I even know like well, what's a word to describe this extravaganza bonanza uh, radio palooza. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Radio Palooza is probably the best way to describe it because it wasn't a marathon. Other shows, and this is not a knock on them, other shows have done like 24 hours, and it, it's it's crazy. It, it actually seems like a mental health minefield because they lock themselves in one room, and it's usually it usually devolves into like, let's just drink a bunch of beer and eat a lot of food and watch the game and interact with people, and we wanted to really schedule this thing out. So it was, uh, I mean, a rotation of guests every 15 minutes. Every 15-minute block was thoroughly planned over the course of two months. And that's not typically how we roll. We, we typically fly by the seat of our pants, but we, we wanted to spotlight all of our podcast properties. And it was really a festival for fans of the show. And I feel I really am proud of what we accomplished there. It's living on our Levitard and Friends YouTube page. If you haven't seen it, it's fairly evergreen. And, yeah, it almost killed me. So this was the... The big way to kick off the DraftKings partnership, again, explain to our listeners who, who may have missed it. No, I know a lot of them listen to you guys. You guys had Pat Riley, Barkley, Rome. Yeah. I mean, you talk about all the heavy hitters. I mean, I, I can't really think of a better way to kick off <laughs> a new partnerships, partnership slash kind of a new you know path that you guys are going down, uh, or new journey, if you will, with, with Skipper. Um so yeah, I, I I just I wanted just to hear more about just planning twenty four hours of of radio podcasting of guests. It just sounds absolutely daunting and dizzy just thinking about it. But you guys yeah. pulled it off and killed. Yeah, she, yeah we brought in this um, really brilliant uh, young man named Carl Scott from the Players Tribune, and and he uh, really formatted an organizational template that our, I think our team really needed. And we just spent months on end planning this thing out, getting with people, making sure that we weren't double booked. Obviously with a 24 hour marathon, you're going to have to have some fluidity. Things are going to fall through the cracks, but everything from the big beginning where a marching band shows up with Stugats, we, we wanted to start in the tiny broom closet and kind of trick the viewer into thinking that, Oh, this is just them in the room for 24 hours and great. We're going to be really happy. But then we wanted to show the scope of everything. We have cameras on the roof. We had cameras on the street. We have live music. So we programmed all those things. We booked all those things. We found a way to do it. We invented a lot of things uh, along the way, and I'm immensely proud. We thought we were going to have a big, important playoff game, and we kind of didn't. Um, Kawhi versus Luka wasn't, you know, I mean, it was a, it was a cool game in retrospect, but we were expecting, you know, a Knicks game or a game of severe consequence. I believe that was a game six, and mm-hmm. so it just turned into who's going to eat the spiciest pepper on the planet and there were a bunch of like shock jock things in there too. But, uh, we, uh, we, I, I stayed up for all 24 hours. I produced all 24 hours. I, I was, uh, dead. I was, I was, I was feeling accomplished, but I was so burnt out from the previous year and a half that I don't really think I 
got to enjoy it. Um, this is probably the most I've enjoyed the uh, the after effects of it in, in retrospect because uh, I'm not too close to it anymore. But yeah, it beat me into the ground. But like I said, it, you could you can pull up the video on YouTube and literally scan to any day part, whether it's 4 a.m. and the brilliant sort of public access parody that Greg Cody did. And you'll find something that was programmed top to bottom outside of stupidity because you guys definitely mailed that one in. That's the best thing about this is that you can lit it's 24 hours long, but you can really just play rush just click anywhere in it. And you use the word evergreen and it's, it's, I mean, you guys not, I mean, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I, I, we talk about Raleigh and I, you know, in the off season, sometimes we'll take a couple weeks off because we don't want to go on and just ramble about nothing and have that awkward silence of podcasts that no one likes. It gets, real creeped out by uh you guys don't have that option uh because of obviously because you guys have developed your podcast and built it up to being one of the biggest in the world and you guys not only don't have that option you <laughs> 24 straight hours of programming and producing a lot of people don't understand i don't understand uh the the, the depth and the just the scope of all of that yeah, it's not just show. producing, and it's not just producing audio. It's not just producing my talents. It's not just feeding them and directing them and their headphones because the bulk of what I do isn't really known to the listener because it's all through back channels. But it's also producing television at the exact same time. I would be on the air, contributing on the air, while I have a director in Kansas City speaking in my ear about where we're going to go to next. I back channel with him, tell him exactly what I'm setting up. It was a lot. I had one person put on my headphones for a 10-second stretch, and this is a person that has hosted outside the lines before, and she just threw my headphones off because I was living in a, in a maniac's world. It was a lot. It was a lot, but it was really cool. The end product, our fans really loved it outside of the fact that it was 23 hours and 50 minutes, and I haven't heard the end of it. The unsung hero that just described this whirlwind of chaos that was well executed, on top of all that, you have a young kid, correct? Yeah, yeah. That, your first? yeah. that was my first. Yeah, that's my firstborn. And uh, honestly, the the last year and, and a half, I, I couldn't have done without my support system here because people ask me how I did it, and I would kind of deadpan to them. I kind of feel like I'm a bad husband and father because I'm just consumed by work, and I really need like uh, I lean on my wife to really help out. And we all kind of understood that it would be a down payment on our future this last year and a half. And it was, and it still is, but yeah, she's, she's an absolute hero as after freedom. I'm like, I'm taking three weeks off. We're going to California and it's just us. And um, we did that. And and thank God we, we all kind of collectively wore the last year and a half of content on our sleeves. Um, So it was good to actually spend every waking moment with with my daughter and see what I miss and make me realize that I'm never going to get to the point where I'm just inundated and I get burned out. I was aware that what I was doing in the moment was crazy, right? But awareness and actually acting upon that awareness are two different things. And I very much treated the Freedom Marathon as like a finish line. Let me just crawl over this finish line and and let me just get there. So I push a lot of things onto my plate that I probably should have said no to in retrospect. And now through family and a decompression period and seeing my beautiful daughter's face while we were in Malibu, I realized things are going to change and I'm not going to, I'm not going to kill myself in the name of content anymore. Did you take any time in the three weeks that you were out there to just kind of sit back and reflect and appreciate of how much you guys have done and accomplished in the last like six months? (laughs) Uh, You know, this is the most that I have. It is pretty, pretty Like, Have you ever taken three weeks off before? And no, that's no. Yeah. It took two weeks off when I got married. I, I mean, the, the pandemic made taking time off very difficult. <laughs> my options, my options were were limited too. So it was also a byproduct of everything that the pandemic brought on. But yeah, two weeks in California and one week just to recover. I guess because I legitimately burned out. No, I'm and I'm going to do a better job of that, which is why I'm going to Kansas City. It's why I'm going to Cleveland when they play the Broncos on Thursday night football. When everything started opening up and you realize that I, when we got our vaccine, I'm like, this is, we can live our life. We, we got some living to catch up on. Mm-hmm. So I am traveling a lot Enios, in the next few months. Enios, all of that mental toughness from the guy that dropped off the Browns plates at the dollar store. That's right. Uh, that's a thing of beauty. That's not uh-huh. I don't know if that's actually true, but it's a Browns <laughs> no. podcast. We should probably talk about some Browns uh, actual yeah. stuff as uh, 
time is a wasting. Um, so this off season, no drama. It's bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> We're like, uh, it's a struggle when you're trying to put up Brown's content, but it's also like, well, we're obviously Homer's Brown's fan. Mm-hmm. So it's like not having to talk about a marijuana related offense is fantastic. No guns. No um, guns. Nah, knock on wood. Just yeah, yet. Big knock Still on time. wood. Big knock on wood. We've got three um, weeks until camp, right? So come on. <laughs> one, one of the greatest lines ever, um, as far as Brown's analysis goes, was on your show when you said to Dan, Baker's got the good dudes. Baker's yeah. got the goods, dude. Yeah, <laughs> you can you can buy that shirt on levitardaf.com. <laughs> He's got the goods, Great dude. Plug. That is a sick uh, plug. Yeah, uh, I think there's actually plenty to talk about, but you guys have probably already addressed it ad nauseum. Uh, Baker's flatly a different quarterback when Odell Beckham Jr. is out there on the field. Uh, as great as Baker was to close that season, you kind of have to pay attention to the fact that he became a different quarterback the second Odell got hurt. The best we've seen of Baker as a pro has been with Odell off. So how does Odell change his game coming off of that injury? How does that affect Baker? Baker's a guy that really likes to spread the pill around, um, and he was very clearly forcing it to Odell Beckham Jr., and that made him less accurate. Um, Now you could probably place a lot of the blame on his struggles earlier in the season on the fact that, hey, new system. uh, Pandemic. Pandemic, a whole remote training camp. All that stuff. And the more comfortable that quarterbacks get within that system, the better they perform. We've seen it um, with Stefanski before. So you, you could put it on that, or you could look at what is now becoming a representative sample of basically half of Baker's career. He's damn near an all-pro when he doesn't have Odell Beckham Jr. on the field. So I think we have a very limited preseason uh and I don't know exactly how they're going to work in Odell off of that injury. It seems like he, he's ready to go. I, I'm very curious to see what they do on the field together, the emergence uh, of Peoples-Jones, and um, will Baker continue to spread the ball around? I think our tight end position is fascinating. And Joku, I thought, closed the season as our best tight end. He really commit, recommitted himself to blocking in a way that I have. I've loved David Njoku. I'm a Miami Hurricane season ticket holder. I have never seen in Joku block like he was towards the end of the season. Is that the player that is coming back? Because, you know, mm-hmm. if you have to worry about anybody in an offseason, you worry about Odell and you worry about Njoku because they like to have their fun. So, so far, so good. Knock on wood. How committed is David Njoku to being the player that he was there? Do you pay Baker? Do you play Nick Chubb? I kind of find those conversations not as interesting as how do these pieces fit with inside the offense. I think yep. the Odell thing is going to define this season, and I think if I think we're starting to get a pretty representative sample that if it's not working as much as I love Odell, as much as there is a place for Odell in this offense, because this offense is about exploiting mismatches, and we saw towards the tail end of the season against Kansas City in the playoff game how Odell could have really helped. It just put the ball in his hands. We saw it in the win against Dallas when they didn't really have much and they were still figuring out their identity. Just give it to Odell, and he'll make something special happen. He's a dynamic player, and I really want to make it work with him. But if it's not working in the earlier season, does the front office decide to make a a move uh, and not try to stress this thing out as they got a quarterback that they have to continue to develop? And obviously, on the defensive side of the ball, Chad Henney turned the corner on our linebackers. That can't ever happen again. <laughs> it, it can never happen. The, the opportunity was oh. there. It was as simple as making sure Chad Henney wouldn't turn the corner and our linebackers who have been ignored largely because of the analytics-based front office and ignoring that position. Wow, I'm just hosting this podcast now. Welcome no, to no, this is great. <laughs> that, 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 was, that was the, the, the wish, the hope, yes. Yeah, what right. you're saying about Baker uh, he's spreading the ball around when he's a better quarterback with Odell on or off the field, that's been kind of one of the debates amongst fans. Baker publicly said it wasn't, Odell's presence or lack thereof, he attributed the success to the bye week. He was, that was like the first time where we could kind of sit down and regroup. Um, I mean, they had virtually no preseason. They have a new head coach, a new system. I like to think that we always defer to Stefanski. We're like, well, they're smarter than us, and they actually call the shots. I think with time to develop – with Odell in this new season, I think they are going to have 
I don't know if it's a short lease, but they're asking themselves the same questions. And if it doesn't work, I think they're going to pull the plug, but they're going to give them the shots. And right now, I, I don't know. It's But that being said, it's almost counter to Baker when Odell went down in that Bengals game. He threw like 20 yeah. straight completions in a row. It's like, well, that wasn't an off. That wasn't a bye week. That was the second half of the the second half of the game. So who knows, man? But oh my god, it gives me jingles. I'm back. Yeah. I'm all in. Yeah, it's a, it's an exciting time. These are these are good problems to have. Like we know we have a quarterback. Where for 21 years we we're asking, do we have a quarterback? I kind of feel like we're all relatively confident now that we've seen him do it. We we've seen him do it in big games. We've seen him do it for huge chunks of the season when his team really needs him. Now it's how can we help the quarterback? Do we have the right around him, not just offensively but defensively? Because I felt like uh, the the defense with a it all crescendoed in that one moment with with Chad Henney turning the corners on our linebackers and. Quite honestly, uh, it's an echo chamber probably, but Miles Garrett was not himself towards the end of the season. No. 70% of Miles Garrett is still better than most players, but it's still not 100% of Miles Garrett. And he could have really impacted the game if he were 100%, and now you have Clowney opposite of him. And, um, yeah, you can't help but get super excited. The The additions in the secondary also get me very excited, and I think Cleveland has a very tried-and-true contender here to push for that elusive Super Bowl appearance that um, generations have gone without seeing it. Here's a fun question, and I love this question because it just seems like all of the answers are positives. Last year, we had to th- you could count on literally three fingers who the best defensive player is or whatever on a team that struggled defensively. Which new addition defensively, which player are you most excited for? Well, this one's not going to be sexy, but... Clowney has – he's always been a confusing player. With the, the release times of quarterbacks these days, his sack totals really haven't been what everybody would expect them to be, but he still impacts the game. So he's kind of like this really interesting case study for analytics stories. And I've, I've gone to Sloan MIT, and uh, I've, I'd like to delve into those numbers. And I'm really curious to see – what those the combination of those two guys exactly how they complement each other as pass rushers and as run stoppers too because they can impact the game there. I, I am I am really curious to see how this plays out because I happen to think this is going to go well. Clowney said, which I thought was really jarring considering I, I didn't know if to read into it that he just didn't like JJ Watt or if he was just really transparently honest about what he felt about Miles Garrett, but he said he's never been paired with someone like Miles Garrett. And this is a guy that played alongside J.J. Watt, one of the greatest pass rushers in the history of the NFL. So I I think if you get pressure with four or three, you can really alleviate a lot of the issues that you saw in that secondary, a lot of the issues that you saw with those linebackers. And towards the end of the season, Miles was hit or miss with uh, how COVID impacted him. We finally saw uh, some production from our D-line that wasn't uh, uh, Miles Garrett towards the end of the season, but injuries impacted our, our, our pass rushers there. So I think that this could be a big cure-all and, and a big cover-up for a lot of our deficiencies along uh, that back seven. So I, I really want to see how our D-line, without Sheldon Richardson and with the addition of Ke- uh, Clowney, can really get after the quarterback and make lives easier for our young cornerbacks that I think are, are going to start to come online and Hopefully, Greedy is a part of that. I don't care who you are. If you're Mahomes, if you're a first-year rookie, if you've been in the Tom Brady, looking over and seeing Miles Garrett and Clowney lining up, mm-hmm. and their one goal is to get to your head, not not in the literal sense, like they're just they want to you, is, I mean, you, that's just something else. Another question I wanted to, to ask you, um, to piggyback off of Raleigh's question, your favorite new addition, who was your favorite or most intrigued uh, draft pick? Uh, it was a kid that we got from Auburn that's the fastest player. Schwartz? Uh, yeah, Schwartz. Schwartz. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I blanked He's out on already his name. The fastest, already the fastest player in the NFL? Yeah. Uh, supposedly. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. If, like, let's see him in a game, but yeah. On paper, he's the fastest player in the NFL. He ran a 4-2-5. Yeah, uh, speed 
speed. <laughs> like he'd be the, the, at the Olympics this summer if he wasn't playing football. Yeah, Steph, like you said, our default is we trust Stefanski to exploit the the mismatches, right? And when you have the fastest player in the NFL and you have a a quarterback that could throw it over the mountains, I want to see what that looks like. And then you could use Odell in 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 more short field situations, really just put the ball in his hand quickly. I think the biggest issue with Baker, because I, I mean, it comes as a friend and we've talked about this ad nauseum. I, she probably prefers I don't talk about it as much as I do. But I think no one would say that Eli Manning of three years ago was better than Baker Mayfield was last year, right? But he found a way to get the ball to Odell. He found a way to maximize Odell. Odell would tell you that he was still frustrated about how he was using the offense. But when you think about Eli throwing it to Odell, what do you think about? Because I think about the quick screen. A quick screen over the line to Odell Beckham Jr., and then Odell takes it and runs 17 yards with it, shaking somebody, running out off to the sideline. Yeah, you have the highlight catch down deep in the end zone. But really, how they implemented Odell was really quick passes, and Odell would do damage with Yak. I think Baker's height is often ignored when it comes to that. We're not able to utilize that one play because Baker can't necessarily get it, get it over the line from a standing position. Eli's tall enough where he's said, hut, throws it over the line into the hands of Odell quickly. He, Baker's got to move out of the pocket to be able to deliver that ball, and by the time that happens, Odell's not open anymore. And then you're forced to try to make things happen, and you have two guys improvising and ignoring other reads. So if they can get Odell into the slot, into the slot, in places where you have Schwartz cutting off, and you have that as essentially as a decoy that you keep the defense honest on a couple of times, and those times will be sensational because they'll be 80 yard bombs. Then you could really implement Odell Beckham Jr. the way that I think he's best utilized, which is doing damage in the slot, real quick passes. You have a tired defense. You, Nick Chubb's been beating you to death for three quarters, and now we got to worry about the shiftiness and speed of Odell Beckham Jr. That, to me, is a killer recipe for success towards the end of the season. And I it's think, arousing. Yeah, and I, think the, and I think Schwartz cutting off the top of the defense is key. Once Baker knows that he can peel off of that read to Odell real quick and go to Schwartz and keep that defense honest, it's game over for me. Do you agree with, and if so, why do you think that the goalposts keep getting moving, keeping moved further and further back for Baker? You know, last year, two years ago, can he just be a competent quarterback? Can he be assistant? Now it's, why isn't he Mahomes? The, the, the standards people keep holding him to on certain TV programs or radio shows keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and no other quarterback in the league has that on him. No other quarterback in the league really talked as brashly as Baker did when he entered the league, and no other quarterback in the league talked as brashly without necessarily proving it on the field as much and still was a part of every commercial that you saw during the offseason. So I think really what it what it became with Baker is fatigue. Like, all right, we'll, we'll handle this if it's Patrick Mahomes, but what are, we, what are we doing here? Like, why am I at an empty first energy stadium with Baker Mayfield? Like, why do I care? So I think that's why. And Baker is not really going to change, or at least he says he's not going to change, but he kind of has. I I do think he's not talking as much because I think that there were a lot of lessons to be learned from that first season with Odell, with Freddie Kitchens. That was an epic disappointment. And I I kind of feel like, oddly enough, that season stung more than – Nothing stung more than the winless season. Uh, Not necessarily 0-16 because that was really embarrassing, especially the way that it happened to the Steelers. Towards the end, I think we all were kind of like resigned to the fact we were going to go winless, and then you had a chance to win that game, drop the pass, and you're just like, God damn it, it's incompetent as ever. But yeah, I kind of, that one hurt me more than like the one win season, yep. I guess, because of the expectations. We, we don't do a lot of carrying expectations in the seasons here as, as Browns fans, and we did there, and it burned us. So I do think there's a little bit of PTSD there from Baker. He's a little more um, coy. When he approaches the media, I saw him chime in on the match yesterday when when uh, Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers are uh, – the fact that he's in that company, right? Wouldn't it be cool that some producer is saying, wouldn't it be cool if we have Baker Mayfield being interviewed while Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady are on the golf course? He has this big superstar quality, mm-hmm. but he doesn't necessarily have the success associated with the big superstar quarterback just yet. We're all kind of projecting it. 
with Baker. So I think that's why they keep moving the goalposts. And by the way, that's not a bad place to be. They move the goalposts on Aaron Rodgers to this day. That's true. I, I, I personally think that yeah, Baker did get some flack for being in the commercials for uh, like coming out swinging on um, what's his name show. Uh, Coward. Coward show. Yeah. But I, I swear, I think that he owes everything to that mentality and what's brought him the success he has in Cleveland. I mean, you have to be, you have to have a chip on your shoulder. You are trying to turn around a one in 15 team that followed that up with Owen 16 team and just kind of say, bring it on. And people don't talk about how he's gone through 30 different head coaches in two and a half years. And yeah, he definitely did kind of draw the lines setting up that, us against the world mentality, but I think it's the mentality he has to have. It. He was a walk on at Texas Tech, walk on at uh, Oklahoma, and who knows? I'm just like I do. I agree that he has kind of humbled himself a little bit within the media. Um, I don't know if that's just being tired of going to battle every time or uh, whatever. But I he do was so think- Raleigh. I think he was a young man still. And, yeah. and I think People there's forget, a, he just turned 26. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think he was a young man. And I, there were things that I was doing at 23 that I stopped doing it at, at 26. And I think overall, there's just been a maturation from how he approaches social media to the public uh, image that he and his wife have now together. To, I think there's just been an overall growth and development of Baker Mayfield, the person. And thank God. Um, and, and I think this carries over to just nutrition. I think his body's in better shape looks now. Good. Yeah, I think his body's in better shape than it was two years ago. I I think he learned a lot of harsh lessons that, okay, at Oklahoma, I could just trot onto this field and my dynamic arm would be enough and I could be brash and I could be cocky and I could be pulling at my groin. This is the the elite. Everyone made it through something. Everyone has their own way of how they got to the upper echelon, to the pinnacle of the sport. So you're going to have to put in the work. And I think he realized that, and uh, it just goes to the overall growth and maturation of Baker Mayfield, the person, and I think the Browns will benefit of that from that. Greatest Nicolas Cage movie of all time, and why is it The Rock? I don't think it's The Rock. The Rock's certainly a top Uh-oh. three film. Uh, part, now The Rock's incredible, but if to tap into a Nicolas Cage list, you have to go maximum Cage, Right. And The Rock was more Maximum Connery than Maximum yeah. Cage. In retrospect, it was a more subdued Nicolas Cage. And I don't think a subdued Nicolas Cage benefits anybody. So while it's a great action flick, the premise is unreal. Uh, I actually went to Alcatraz a couple of weeks ago, and I was just reciting lines from the film and explaining the plot of the movie to my wife's 18 year old cousin. Uh, it was, it was yes. really, yes. we were really not touring the most infamous prison in, in America's history. What we were touring was the set of Nicolas Cage's third greatest film. And uh, I really enjoyed that. But for me, it's face off because he runs the emotional gamut there. And it's not too crazy because now Nicolas Cage finds himself in the zone where he really turns it on and he hams it up because he knows what it is around him. It was like, I kind of liken it to Christopher Walken. At a certain point, Christopher Walken sees onto all the things that the imitators were doing, and it's almost like he started doing it more, and it kind of diluted the pure cut of Christopher Walken that made him so cherished. So face off, because he had to play two characters, and it's just a, a banging action movie, and the fact that Travolta is almost as good as Cage's in that film. And come on, the premise, they switch faces. <laughs> they, 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 he gets stuck as Castor, Sean Archer gets stuck as Castor Troy. And Nicolas Cage has to emote this when he, when he sees his wife as the person that killed their son. I, I mean, can you imagine? It's, it's, it's insane. I, I can't, I haven't stopped thinking about this since you said you went to Alcatraz. Did you just recite the entire, uh, Navy SEAL <laughs> ex renegade Marine shower shootout scene? I uh, did know that the, the uh, we saw the showers from afar, but I was too busy trying to explain to my wife's 18 year old cousin who in the heady play as a parent, I decided, Hey, you want to come out to California? And then I trick her into watching my kid at night. So <laughs> I, did, I did that. And I explained the nature of the chemical weapons and how 
you know, they're going to try to lie to you and tell you that no one ever successfully escaped Alcatraz. No one successfully escaped the rock, but there was one man. Sean and, Connery. Yeah. And, yeah. They're the only, they're the only crew crazy enough to actually try to break in. He spent his entire life trying to break out. Now, just when he thought he was out, they're pulling him back in for a break in. So really it was just the construct of the rock and how Nicolas Cage dove towards the, the, uh, the rolling ball of chemical disease that was headed its way across the bay to San Francisco and how we owe our American livelihood to, to Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery on that one faithful afternoon day in the, the mid nineties. Having to having the courage to fight after the top seal team in the country was tragically gunned down yeah. by those renegade Marines. Like they still yeah. had the courage to go on. There's a lot of life lessons there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the dichotomy of thanking the heroes and the villains for their service because they were disenfranchised. It was just, it was really just a minefield. Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a lot of humanity in General Hummel's uh, approach to everything, but I mean that's just life, man. We when you watch it through the, the prism man. of twenty, when you watch it through the prism of twenty twenty one, Raleigh, you kind of understand where Ed Harris is getting at, but you also understand that he acted way too far. They they all had shipmates that were down in the mud, shit on by the Pentagon, and yeah. uh, man, I am jacked up after this interview. <laughs> One, oh, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry to, to get off the movie uh, train. One more question, Mike. You started with the Dan Levitard show when you were 19, I believe, yeah. as an intern. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been there ever since. That was 2005. Am I correct again? Yeah. Nice. Two for two. We're getting better. Um, <laughs> it feels like a deposition at this point. In my, oh, well, that's coming after we get off the mic. No. <laughs> in my, again... You guys have one of the most successful, most listened to, downloaded podcasts in the world. When people, when I've been asked, you know, how do you think a podcast gets so successful? Obviously, I don't have uh, any experience with the best podcast in the world to, to say anything. But my opinion is that consistency is what makes podcasts get to where they are. It's not just people that come out and expect their first episode to get a million downloads and if they don't they're a failure two that just keep going and going and going and going and building and building and building you have seen every side of this business more than most people on the planet um what would you say is if you had to pick one thing that would make for a successful show podcast can't you even put your finger on just one thing well for us the thing that made us most successful, I think, was prioritizing it early on. So if you're a podcast today, that train has come and gone. Um, back in the days where having an RSS feed was a very confusing process and it would take you 12 minutes on on iTunes to download, like we were ahead of that. Our radio station wanted to kill our podcast because it was cannibalizing our radio numbers very early on in the process and I wouldn't let them do it. And we found ways to continue that. And actually, our RSS feed that we have to this day is the very first RSS feed that we had. And that's not something that you wow. hear in this industry a lot. Yeah. Um, through several negotiations, we always kept it. And in this most recent buyout with ESPN, I still prioritize it. And um, ESPN let us have it. And I'm trying to wrap my head around this. It's the very same RSS feed that I was uploading as a, as a teenager. Wow. Well, if you ever get bored with the uh, Levitard show and you want to develop a uh, Brown-specific podcast empire, we are always <laughs> on the prowl for another intern. Um, so keep that in your back pocket. Kevin, to answer your question for the contemporary podcaster, I, I've, I've found that, yes, consistency is massive because you don't ever want your listenership to break the habit of listening. It's why, yeah, you don't have spots in June and July, but you're still out here in the drier months where it's harder to do Brown's content because you feel you owe your listeners that before you can grow the base, you have to prove that you can maintain your base. So uh, shout out to you for putting in the work. And I think right now, presently, the biggest way to grow your digital audio product is by going on other digital audio products by talking to other podcasters. I feel like there are some podcasts that do a very great job. Link in the bio. Check out it if you want to check out the podcast. If you want to check out the Daniel Levitard show, check out the link in this bio. Uh, you know, And, and uh, I think that's the best way to grow it. And now digital video is really one of the marketplaces that I feel like even the Levitard show has been a little late on and we're trying to play a little catch up. And I'm really excited about the metrics. Freedom was a large 
part of really developing the digital video asset because I want that to sort of catch up to the digital audio product and the digital audio product is obviously a behemoth. So digital video is, I think, the next great frontier for content creators. It's why we're on um, a video platform right now doing this podcast. That's the best that's the next best way to grow your content. You have to be multifaceted, digital audio, digital video, and the lines have to be blurred to the consumers to what's prioritized. They all, they both have to share equal importance. That's how you grow. Yeah. Raleigh and I were going to do a Patreon uh, and just have our, our video like a shirtless uh, podcast for yeah. those that pay. So, so we're going to sell feed pics. <laughs> um, Mike, Mike, this was uh, incredible and I appreciate, you know, I had a lot of, uh, uh, personal producing questions I wanted to ask. So I appreciate you, you taking those. I don't have to plug the Dan Levitard show. Everyone here knows what Dan Levitard show is, but we will of course have all the info in the description for anyone that's been living under a rock. It's okay. We don't blame you. Raleigh, any closing thoughts or words? Do we want to ask Mike for his record prediction? Or are we going to jinx something? Um, yeah, I think we got to hold off on that until right. we start seeing at least August. Yeah. At least August. Um, yeah, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time, uh, we've been trying to get you on for a while. Um, not to steal your bit, but talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> much appreciated. See you guys. It was a pleasure. Oh,